a listener production. Author, journalist, TV presenter, entrepreneur, speaker, life and health coach for millions of people. In another life, Sarah Wilson was the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine and judge on the very first season of MasterChef. But the book, I Quit Sugar, and then founding iQuitSugar.com, the world's largest digital wellness site, changed everything. A success guaranteed with seemingly no limits. I mean, imagine being one of the top 200 most influential authors in the world. But much to everyone's surprise, in 2018, she closed the business and handed the knowledge to the community. She moved on to follow another path and passion. She was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in 2008 and has talked openly about her struggles with anxiety and bipolar disorder. And for the foodies out there, don't worry, we'll get there. We had so much to talk about and, of course, we had to do a quick COVID check-in. Just a heads up, we do talk about some heavy topics, including mental health and suicide. Please welcome Sarah Wilson. I thought a good place to start because we're all feeling, and you may not want to talk about it, but I left the house this morning having, you know, being in lockdown, thinking that lockdown would have finished last year. And my house has a low energy. There's a low ebb. There were tears. I was quite pleased to leave the house, but now I feel lost without my girls, you know, because they're at home digesting lockdown and dealing with it. How are you dealing with all this? Because Sydney has gone, you know, hard and deep into this Mm -hmm. thing, hasn't it? How's it all going? Well, I think we're in week six um, and it's not looking good. Um, I've also got a foster child now, a teenager in my house full time. She's been here six months. And um, so there's the homeschooling aspect of things and we're getting to know each other pretty well. (laughs) Like it's her and I. But Gary, look, you know, not much has changed for me because I work from home and have done so for over a decade now. And if you call home you know, just a desk wherever I happen to be because I've lived on the road. I lived on the road after MasterChef. I lived on the road for eight years. And so I I guess I'm adaptable. That would be the other aspect of all of this. So not much has changed. I work from home anyway. We're allowed to exercise. I spend a small fortune on rent living right across the road from Bondi Beach. And so I do what I always do. I exercise when no one else is there. I swim across the ocean to get away from humans. I mean, I've spent my life getting away from humans. And so lockdown works for some of us. (laughs) I mean, I love humanity. I love dealing with them. I love understanding the juicy aspects of humanity, but I'm okay being a sort of a team of one or a team of two as I am at the moment. So I also, I always feel a responsibility to everyone who rings me asking how I am to sort of be positive about it because I do believe that much will come of this. I think philosophically and almost spiritually, I feel that COVID is sort of the little lesson, the little slap down that humanity's needed. We've been sent to our room to have a good hard look at ourselves because the way we live isn't working, right? And COVID is a result of that overpopulation, the animal species crossing into the human realm, um, a whole range of things, the way that we consume and travel so much, that can't sustain itself too much longer. There's a bit of self-analysis going on here. You know, like I'm a really positive, upbeat, and I'm a, sim- I'm a simple thinker. I was listening to some of your podcasts during the week and I go, oh, this is weight. I don't even think that high. Like I'm a, I like, <laughs> I like the fact that I'm fairly black and white. I'm a simple thinker. And, but even now, and Victoria's been, you know, through, I mean, this is lockdown six now for us. Now I find it hard motivating myself, 
keeping those people around me up and positive because that's kind of been my, it's not my job, but that's how I finally got to this point where I've gone, what am I going to do? Like I've always had a very sure idea of where my career was going right up to retirement and, you know, being that old man in the garden picking lemons and things like this. Whereas now it's just like everything's up in the air. So for people that aren't as positive, it's really hard for people. This is a, you say it's an awakening, but I'm sure a lot of people listening going, well, it's not an awakening for me. I don't feel that way. Well, maybe it is for that very reason. I mean, I think that the big thing that I pick up from what you've said, not that this is an analysis session with Sarah Wilson, but... As the deep, the deep thinker think, talking to the, the straightforward thinker. I mean, life is fundamentally uncertain. Life is fundamentally unknown. We don't, we just don't know. And yet I would say we are a generation that has put so much work into trying to make everything concrete. Like 90% of technology over the last 30 years, I was reading a study on this, found that it's been geared not towards saving the planet or saving humans. It's been geared at getting rid of discomfort and uncertainty. Now, what it's done is cocooned us from everything except for real life. And do you know what's happening right now? Real life. So the fact that you've been able to lead a life where you haven't had to ask these questions because you've been able to follow one foot in front of the other, you know, And life is sort of set up so that we're all sort of geared to do this. After this stage, you do that. And then after you've been in a job for a certain amount of years, then you can do this. That is all being thrown out the window because that is the reality of existence. And so I would say, and this might sound brutal, but in fact, there's a silver lining to this. For anyone who is listening going, well, the lesson I'm getting is that this is just really shit. Well, yeah, But we're going to have to get through this together. The only way, and this is what's wonderful about both COVID and I think the climate crisis and the political fragmentation and everything else that's going on, is that the only way through it is for us to actually coalesce as a community, as a tribe once again. And that, that's the silver lining. That's the lesson. It'll be joyous and beautiful once we we get it because that's what we've been craving. We're lonely. On a more personal level, if people are feeling this way and they're, you know, because they're obviously still in lockdown. I mean, in Sydney, for example, this will go on for quite some time. And certainly in the beginning, we avoided talking about COVID because we just mm. thought it was all going to go away, but it's not. So, you know, by the time this podcast go to air, it's still going to be very relevant, still going to be going on for much longer. So on a more personal level, how, what do you advise people? What strategies do you advise people to kind of dig yeah. their fingers into to, to help? Yeah. So I have a chapter in in my latest book called Soul Nerding as a fix for the sort of the existential fear that we're all feeling. And soul nerding is actually, you can have religion, you can have spirituality, but soul nerding is about reading the works and the lives of people that existed before us in similar times, you know, and Funnily enough, during a crisis, people have a lot of time to write books <laughs> and the best writers have produced beautiful work. So, you know, in my book, I, I rattle off a bunch of awesome writers who have written about where we're all at. And what that does is create openness and curiosity. So I could talk in sort of motherhood statements like, feel into your heart, you know, but I like something a little bit tangible. It's good mm. advice. And, and this morning as I was driving in, and obviously the roads aren't particularly busy, just glanced left and I saw, and it seemed unusual because it is. There were two people on a street that's normally very busy having stopped and pulled down a branch and were smelling the first little cherry blossom on a tree. 
And I just went, that's beautiful, like really lovely. And I may be just constructing a whole story around that little moment, but maybe that's not something that they do normally. Maybe they're yeah. so, you know, they're, they're struggling along that street, they're pushing and, you know, shoving, you know, finding their path forward to the bakery or whatever it is, and they're just all too busy to stop and even notice that even though it's cold, that spring's on the way. It's really, and I thought, yeah. I, hope, I hope you have a nice day. All right, we've done our COVID chat, but I think that's really good advice and I, I thank you a lot for that. Can I drag you back a bit? I don't want to linger on the past, of course, but I certainly want to talk about I Quit Sugar because I think for most people, they still see you as I Quit Sugar. And talk a little bit about that and where the idea came from to start off with. Yeah, well, as you, I think I think I used to give you a hard time about your sugar on MasterChef, didn't I? Always, and you were always right yeah. and I knew it. I think I told you you are right too. <laughs> and certainly as I've got older, I know you're right. Yeah, so I, I suppose I was already in the space because I've got an autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's, which got really bad on the set of um, MasterChef. And... Um, it was kind of a perfect storm for an autoimmune disease, late hours, ridiculously rich food, you know, sort of a, a weird kind of stress. I, I got really sick. And so off the back of that, you might recall, I ended up moving up to Byron um, and sort of living in a, an army shed on my own for a year and a half. And I, I couldn't really do anything. And I wrote a column for the Fairfax papers at the time in the sort of the, the Sunday magazine, the insert. And it was literally, it was, it was a stroke of genius. Um, I could only do a certain amount of work. I had to pay my bills, even in my army shed. So I wrote a column about how to heal yourself. And, you know, it was called This Week I. And one week, you know, it was like this week I meditate with the Dalai Lama. This week I talk vulnerability with Brene Brown on a cushion, you know, whatever. And it was very self-serving because I was trying to get myself better. And um, one week I was out of the topic and I've been resisting this one, even though I'd lectured you and, and Matt and George on sugar consumption for a good nine months. Let's be honest, the three unhealthiest people on television. We can, we can frame that up so you can yeah. carry on from that point. Physically, mentally, totally healthy, yeah, switch, I'm sure. Switch, switch yeah. Switch um, so um, one week I was out of a topic. I had resisted this idea myself, uh, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And I went, this week, dot, 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 I quit sugar. So that's where the name came from. It was literally after an ellipsis on the co- my regular column. And then I went down a rabbit hole. You know, I committed uh, research and realised that to change a physical and a mental habit, you needed eight weeks, not the 21 days that had been suggested earlier. And I just went down this rabbit hole. And for listeners, this is no big secret because I've written a book about it, but I have bipolar. And so one of the great gifts of bipolar is you enter a rabbit hole, you do not come out <laughs> until you've got everything. And it's not always pleasant um, being down there. But I just dug and dug and dug and Twitter just got invented. So I started tweeting things, tweeting really horrible pictures of my food that I was making, and it just sort of grew and grew. And then I wrote an ebook. I spent a hundred dollars on an ebook writing course, and I did the programming for it and uploaded it, thinking, "Oh, look, if I just cover my costs, that'll be awesome." Anyway, it became an Amazon bestseller, and then publishers came and turned it into a book, and that became a New York Times bestseller. So I did it sort of back to front, ebook la, la, la. And um, it just kept going. And before I knew it, I was the sugar lady. It's kind of funny that I should be called that. But during that process, I had an accountant who said to me, right, Sarah, we need a five-year financial plan. I went, I don't do financial plans. I don't spend money. I don't own anything. I don't care. And he said, no, no, make something up. I said, all right. 
in five years, I want to have earned enough money to be able to live off the minimum wage for the rest of my life until I'm, I don't know, 94. And then I can just put all of my efforts into doing philanthropic work, work that matters to my soul. And he was like, okay, anyway, five years to the day, he rings me. I've met the goal. I go, all right, cool. He said, now what? And I said, I'll get rid of the business. I made a promise. So I set about selling the business. That was tedious. So I ended up selling the assets and I gave all the money to charity. And I still run the business, but I'm about to sell off the final, the the name, the whole concept to these really cool guys I've known for ages. And again, um, that'll be another, you know, couple hundred thousand that will go to charity. So I've managed to kind of give a couple million dollars now to charity and I've got enough money to live off the basic wage until I'm 94 and anything above that I give away to charity. So when anyone says you've got a vested interest in people quitting sugar, I'm able to say actually I no. don't. <laughs> well, that, that's, beauti- that's a beautiful thing to hear. Did that dawn on you at a particular point or is this something that has always been in you? I've always had a problem with money in the sense that I don't like what it does to humans. And I grew up on a subsistence, semi-subsistence living property. But I would say that I'm the most extreme in my family. I've got five brothers and sisters and we all ride bikes. All my brothers have chickens, grow their own vegetables, are very, very humble livers. You know, we all, we don't buy presents for each other. Uh, We never have. We just don't do consumerism. So I guess that's been in my DNA from a, from a, which is hilarious, right? Because I edited Cosmo. Well, that, that, I mean, that's it's what I was hilarious. Gonna, that's what I was going to say because whether people realise or not, well, I think when I met you, I saw you as a very different person. You know, I saw yeah, but you. I was always like I saw, it. I think, yeah, when I got to know you, yes. But when I first met you, I thought, oh, you know, this lady, I mean, she's beautiful, she's tall, only because I'm short. But <laughs> I, I really. I'm only tall because you're short. Exactly. <laughs> I'm very short. Anyway, but as the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine and a journalist or whatever, I saw you straight away as somebody else. And it wasn't until mm. I got to know you that I realized you weren't that person. And actually, as time's gone on, you must have been at odds. Maybe you tell me with the career that you were forging for yourself. Yeah. Well, I guess the other aspect of your question, you sort of said, was there like a little moment? And there was, and it was exactly that to what you're saying. It was exactly that. Um, There was this moment where I felt like a square peg being banged into a round hole and it was abrasive. And that's, you know, that's when I got sick and it just got worse and worse. And I did MasterChef in the middle of that. So I got sick at Cosmo. I did MasterChef literally, I mean, At one point, my doctor said I was two weeks from heart failure. I was so sick. And then I eventually had to go, right, that's it. Exit the scene. Exit everything. But I reached a point where I was, you know, and I've written about this, um, I was ready to die. You know, it was suicidal ideation. Um, It wasn't a a, a sort of a whimsical thing. It It was I felt I'd tried everything and I just... I couldn't do it any longer. Um, And so there was this moment where I spent three days on the floor of my bedroom. I hadn't slept. I didn't sleep for three days. And I looked into the mirror and uh, I couldn't see myself. I disappeared. And that's when I went, right, I'm ready to, to go. And then I went, hang on. <laughs> and this is my eternal optimism, right, and, and sort of last-minute thinking that sort of has propelled me well, hang on, if I'm ready to let go of all of this, what if I stay and like do it by stealth and I do it with just the clothes on my back and I do it my way 
Like I'm willing to let everything go. What if I just do this my way? And so that was the decision. That was when I decided I will never get caught up again and um, I won't deviate from my values. And so that was the moment that I then, actually, no, that happened just before MasterChef because I got up and the following day, Kerri-Ann Kennelly rang and said, darling, could you host my show for a couple of days? I need a holiday. And I said, but Kerri-Ann, you don't know me. I don't know you. And I've never hosted a show before. Anyway, I went in there. I don't remember much of it because I was so sick, but off the back of it, our mate Henry Stride saw me. She was at work at Channel 9 and uh, put me forward for the MasterChef audition. And here I was trying to get away from it all, but, you know, sometimes you get tempted a few times just to test how resolute you are. So, yes, there was a moment and that was it. And I had to, I deviated, came back to it, deviated, came back to it. And every time I came back to it, I was rewarded, 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 rewarded. And, and now I live my life true to it and, um, yeah, it's become a lot easier. So you don't have those moments anymore where you feel that you're getting dragged down into something you don't want to go into? No, they're not very long-lived. And it's partly getting old, right? You become pretty gnarly in terms of your boundaries. You get better at them. Look, Gary, I've had to accept and maybe you saw, I mean, I was reasonably young. I was a bit younger than all you guys. I know I was older than George um, on MasterChef and taller. Um, but um, <laughs> remember I used to like when I was really tired, I used to just lean, lean on, on his, his head. Lean on his head. I know. <laughs> yeah, just, just kind of put my arm it's on his head. It's not a bad spot to lean on. It gets a bit sweaty oh. every so often. but Yeah, no, it was good. He didn't mind. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just realised that I would have to do life my own way because I haven't necessarily fitted in. And, look, a lot of people feel that, so I'm not any more unique than anyone else. But... I haven't done the marriage and the kids and the mortgage and the, all of that kind of thing. And yeah, I've had to find a way that works for me. I've had to find my tribe, which is why I hit the road. And I just traveled around the world looking for people who saw the world a little like I did and who were willing to discuss things, big ideas deeply and with deep love. And sometimes it would be with people who didn't even speak English. I had a Greek lover who was a shepherd. He was a goat herder on this remote island, and we barely spoke any of each other's language, but it was a spiritual relationship and it was awesome, you know? So that's probably what it's got me to do is it's got to me, me to live my, my life. I want to ask about the Greek lover, but I'm not going to. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you just, to, just to pull back a little bit because I love this and there's so much to absorb here, but can we focus a little bit on, just because it's a food podcast, just a little bit on what was behind I Quit Sugar and maybe how you experimented on yourself or the direction that took you because of that change in your life? Yeah. Yeah. So with an autoimmune disease, it's a very imprecise area of medicine. They don't really know what causes it. And oh, look, the latest science with, say, for instance, Hashimoto's is that it's the Epstein-Barr virus that gets lodged into your thyroid and then your immune system comes and attacks it. But, you know, speak to me in six months' time, it's probably going to be another theory. So it's very imprecise. And so you've really got to take matters into your own hands to a certain extent because endocrinologists give you a, a pill and it's a, it's a bit of a Band-Aid. It doesn't get to the heart of the wound. So I just knew I had to sort of work it out and I knew there were certain things that really made it worse and sugar was one of them. 
So anyone listening who's got an autoimmune disease, you will tend to be more addicted to sugar than most people, which is a real catch-22, but you also need to quit it more than anyone else. So I just had to find a technique that could really work, that could cut the emotional and the physical and the hormonal habit. So the science behind it, Gary, and tell me if I'm, you know, telling you how to suck eggs, but it's essentially when you're talking sugar, you're talking like sucrose, which is everyday table sugar. It's the sugar that's added to most of our processed foods. And it's 50% glucose, 50% fructose. It's the fructose half that's the problem. Glucose is in vegetables, it's in all kinds of foods, and it's wonderful. It's the stuff that gives us our energy and we process it through our cells and we, we burn it off. With fructose, it's processed much like we process alcohol and toxins through our liver. Our liver is like a big strainer (laughs) that makes sure the bad shit doesn't go into our organs. And what it does is it pumps it out the other side and stores it as visceral fat, which is the fat around our organs. But that whole process, when we consume sugar, when we consume fructose, it also triggers incredible amounts of inflammation. And it's also, uh, it deregulates our hormones. So we have leptin and ghrelin, which are the hormones that tell us when we're hungry and when we're full, no, the other way around, when we're full and when we're hungry. And that's in lovely calibration as kids. Remember when you used to get full and go, oh, I can't eat anymore. And then, you know, next meal, you're starving. Like most people in Australia today, we've lost that mechanism and it's primarily because of sugar. It regulates that. And the reason for that is because when we were cavemen and our systems have changed barely at all since we were in fact cavemen, there was very little sugar on the planet. There was a few bitter berries and a little bit of honey, right? And so we were programmed to have no off switch to it, i.e. to dampen the ghrelin and the leptin mechanism, to be able to binge on it like nonstop, to be obsessed by it. And the reason for all of that is because it's the most efficient way to get fat, basically. You want to get fat, you eat sugar. And so our bodies knew that. If we found some honey, it's like, don't just eat a little bit of this stuff eat as much as you can because fat was a premium, you know? So our bodies haven't changed yet. We're being bludgeoned with sugar. We don't even have to climb up to the beehive to get it or wander, you know, savannas to find the berry bush. It's fed to us. It's force fed to us in all of our food, but we still have the same mechanism. But yes, as I say, I went down that rabbit hole. So I started to notice within a couple of weeks, generally most people will notice at the two-week mark of quitting sugar that your skin changes, which is great as a business model because everybody goes, oh my God, I'm looking better. I'm going to keep going. And then you get to the four-week mark and you go through the detox, which is particularly hard. And then it gets progressively easier. That's generally how it goes. So can I just just stop you for a second, just to make it more personal to you. If you were trying this or experimenting this, were these the things that you noticed? Like, did you did you go, yeah. right, I'm going to, I don't know, how did you do it? I'm putting words in your mouth. How did you go, yeah. oh, I need to fix this. What am I, I'm going to well, cut sugar out. What am I going to do? Yeah, so, all right, first step was um, we are really bad at not doing things as humans. So you see a wet paint sign, do not touch. All we want to do is touch it. So I went into the psychology of it and realized you've got to actually have, you've got to crowd it out. And this is psychology that works with a lot of addiction theory. So you crowd out your thinking, you crowd out your appetite with other foods. And so the best foods to get rid of a sugar habit are protein and fat, saturated fat. So we're talking, we're talking cheese, nuts, 
avocado, olive oil. And so, you know, you basically a whole heap of that. And what that does, it's the equivalent of throwing a log on your metabolic fire as opposed to kindling and kero, you know, which is what sugar and carbs are. And so you will eat, you get full, you know, the ghrelin leptin mechanisms kick in, you go for, it'll burn nice and solidly for four or five hours and then you eat lunch and then you, you know. So I, I realized that worked and I, and I, brought it into practice straight away. So when you say you realised that worked, I mean, you went out, because you've always shopped like this anyway. I know this of you, right? You went Mm. out, you bought a tonne of the greens and protein and nuts and things, jammed your cupboards full of it and just ate when you felt like it. And then two, two two weeks in, you kind of went, gee, I'm feeling different. Yes, I did. It was two weeks. Firstly, my energy levels shifted. So I wasn't getting that 3 p.m. slump. Yeah, I had much more even energy. And like I say my skin, your pimples and your wrinkles fade. And I noticed that dramatically. And it was probably helped that I was living in that army shed because I was isolated. And so you just notice things, you know, when you're on your own and you don't have distractions. So that definitely changed. And a lot of my gut problems changed. And then gradually, I would say at about the four or five-week mark, the inflammation just went down and it continued to go down. And now, bear in mind, I'd been told I'd never have children. I was going through perimenopause. You know, I was in my mid-30s. I was given all of these diagnoses. And over the course of a couple of years of eating in this way, of literally very, very little sugar, and, and after the eight weeks, by the way, what I did is then I went, ah, oh, now I'm going to listen to my body because my hormones are working as they need to. My body will tell me what I want. And that's how I eat today. So we're talking 12 years later, you know, I'm, I'm the same weight as I was when I was 18. I'm the same weight as I was when I quit sugar. I have not changed and I'm, you know, almost 48 now. And it's, I eat more than Anyone I know, as in I eat robustly. I eat three meals a day. I don't, apart from quitting sugar, I've never dieted, but I don't consider that a diet. I didn't do it for weight loss. Um, and I put on a lot of weight. MasterChef, I put on weight and Hashimoto's. I put on 15 kilos. I, you know, it wasn't like I didn't have a weight problem. So eventually my whole body just softened and modulated. And eventually, um, I guess probably, the, you know, I reversed all of the blood tests. So my antibodies went down to zero. That took seven years. It was a long, it was a lot of work to do. I had the worst case of Hashimoto's the Prince of Wales hospital had ever seen. So I was coming from a pretty bad starting point. And then um, when I was 42, I got pregnant. So as it turns out, I, and I regulated my periods in that time to clockwork, no problems at all. My, my whole body just fell back into line. Yeah, I ended up getting pregnant and I ended up getting pregnant a number of times, but I was very unfortunate, I guess. I got mercury poisoning on one occasion. Umbilical cord tied itself in a knot on another occasion. Um, And then I just got too old (laughs) and decided to foster kids. It was a gradual thing. And now, yeah, I still eat sugar. Like I still, if there's a birthday cake, I'll have some. But I know now sort of what my threshold is. I know to afterwards, the next day, I just got to eat protein, fat, vegetables, Yeah. right? I just go back to the basics, the absolute basics, and my body recalibrates. And you cr- um, you're crowding it out anyway. I mean, that's what you're saying. Yes. If you have a little bit of cake, I mean, you just your system's kind of designed to probably deal with that if you're crowding it out with lots of other yummy stuff. Mm. Yeah, I ate the party pies and uh, the little Frankfurts at the dinner party, and then by the time the cake comes out, I'm like, yeah. 
surprised you didn't, <laughs> surprised you didn't throw it up, to be honest. <laughs> Your system goes, no, no, that's beyond acceptable limits, you know. Oh, but I enjoy, I enjoy the sugar when I eat it, you know, but I know now, I, know, I go back to what it was like for me as a kid. We had Friday night surprise and it was a packet of Tin Tams spread eight ways, split eight ways. I challenge you to split a packet of Tin Tams eight ways. Um, and so it was, I sort of go back to that kind of thinking, you know. We are programmed and the WHO has come out with this now and it came out after I was writing about it, not saying the WHO read my book. Uh, they were referring to the same science. But we can handle between six and nine teaspoons of added sugar a day. For children, it's three. So that's what our body can safely handle before you get these metabolic effects. And six teaspoons, just to give you an indication, one can of Coke is about eight to nine teaspoons of added sugar and apple juice is exactly the same. So glass for glass, apple juice is as much sugar as Coke and the WHO, as do I, deem it added sugar because it's, it's pure sugar by the time you get rid of all the fibre. If you look at a block of chocolate, right, 100 grams, this is quite a good exercise for people. You get a 100-gram block of chocolate. What kind of chocolate do you eat, Gary? I like I'm the guessing dark. milk chocolate. No, no. Oh, you I like, like dark? I like the dark stuff, yeah. I like the, these days, maybe I've changed a bit in the last, as I've got older, I'll only eat chocolate if it's the really good stuff. It's actually yeah. my rule for everything. I only eat stuff that I know is bad if it's really good. So if I buy a croissant and it's like an average croissant, just chuck it in the bin because I go, it's not worth it, gas. I know it's a very yeah. simple, simple way of looking at it, but yeah, back to the chocolate. I don't know. Well, I repurpose it into something because I can't throw anything out. You probably remember that oh, about yeah. me as well. I, yeah, I do. Remember well, that we, food waste stuff, yeah, we can, those issues? Yeah, we can talk and, about yeah. that. We can talk about that. Um, so, yeah, um, good yeah, quality so dark chocolate. But yeah, let's say for exercise sake, 70%. I like, I like uh, well, no, let's say milk chocolate. It's just because we know okay. it's highly sweetened, right? Yeah. So it's about 50% cacao. So if you go for 50% and you can do the sums on your 70% or whatever it is you want. I eat 90% for breakfast every day. I eat three squares of 90% dark chocolate because that's what works for me. I break all the rules. But anyway, so if you take 50%, it's 50% cacao. The rest will likely be sugar. So it's 50% sugar. So there'll be 50 grams of sugar per block. Now, there's about 4.2 grams of sugar per teaspoon. So if you divide, what, 50 by 4.2? teaspoons at least. Eight-ish, yeah, eight to ten teaspoons of sugar in a block of chocolate like that. Now, when you get to 90%, right, it's only 10% sugar. And so across a whole block, it's only you know, a bit over two teaspoons of added sugar for the whole block. And you can't really eat more than three pieces, you know, it's sort of a row and a bit. So it's a really good thing is, you know, if you go to the hundred um, per hundred grams column on a, on packaged food and it says sugar, 40 grams, you know that that's te 10 teaspoons of sugar. And so just divide things by 4.2 and you'll, because teaspoons we can picture and we can only handle six teaspoons of added sugar a day. And so that teaspoon you might add to your coffee, right? is the least of your problems. It's the sugar in tomato sauce. Everyday ketchup, you know, tomato sauce is 50% sugar. So we, if you're having the teaspoon of it, great. But if you're having also, the wallop. We've also got more kind of sugary and salty in terms of our what we want just because of what people are eating. You know, it's like when they classified fast food as a flavour. It became so common that they went, we're going to classify this as a flavour because it's a very particular sweet and salt profile and other flavours mm -hmm. that people just go, yeah, that's burger 
well, that's tomato sauce or that's sausage roll. So it's really interesting. It does interesting. all taste the same, doesn't it? Well, You're it right. Do, it does, mm. and, it, and it gets on top of you, but it's very addictive, and it's we all know that it's addictive for a reason. It's cleverly designed. And it's the, mal- it's the Maillard designed. effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Maillard effect where you cook off fat and sugar and it creates this Maillard flavour, and it's highly addictive. It's yeah. very related to the umami taste yeah. profile, I think. Yeah. And then you add salt to it and, you know, boom. <laughs> I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. I think for most of us, and even me, who you, you probably think I'm an absolute cynic, is that certainly as I've got older, I mean, I know it. I think for me, I'm such a pleasure seeker and an in, it's instant gratification for me, always has been. And so I try most of the time and then on the odd times that I lose grip, which is a couple of times a day, you know, I, I really go down the slippery slope. But I've never been a big sugar eater. I like fr- lots of fresh food. I just eat too much of it. But I have yeah. noticed recently when I play around with stuff, like I go, right, that's it. I'm going to lose weight. The most successful period I've had is eating fats and whole food and fats, meat, mm. you know, whatever. And all of a sudden, it's funny when you said earlier, I get ravenous. Like about dinner time, I'm like, I've got to eat. And Mandy goes, That's go, the best feeling. Yeah, I know. Mandy goes, Why do you want? I go, I need to cook that steak now. And then I just have like a plate of green vegetables and steak as if I haven't yeah. eaten for ages. And then I, you know, I'll get a few weeks into it. Like it's really weird how I'm just like eating so much and losing weight. And then I, I know the answers. It's just this, it's the brain. Well, the answer. The brain, when people, the brain. it just sabotages me. Well, you know, when people ask me, Sarah, just tell us the one thing to do. And I'd go, okay, learn to cook. Because when you cook, I mean, all right, so I'll, I'll, revert, I'll reverse it. So if you want to cut out sugar, cut out processed food, because 90% of processed food has added sugar and it contains more added sugar than you'd, you add at home. So cut out processed food. Now, what that leaves you with is whole food, which you've got to cook. So you've got to learn to cook. And really, that is the secret. It's as simple as listening to what our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers used to say. Just cook, make three veg, you sorted. Yeah. My mum always, and I've said it before on the podcast, but mum, mum always says to me, you know, she goes, don't eat that. And she goes, don't you remember when you were a kid, you just didn't eat between meals. Like, you know, you, and I go, yeah, you used to tell me off. The first thing I do, I'd come over from school, open the fridge, open the cupboard and look for something yeah. to jump out at you. And she was right. You know, we never ate on the, another thing of hers was, you know, she's in her mid, late seventies now. She said, we never ate on the street. You know, you never no. walked down the road with a latte or a smoothie or a, you know, a protein bar, I mean, just unheard of. You came home, you ate, you went back out and did whatever you did. And it's delaying so gratification, simple. delaying gratification, all the science in the world points to how that will make you far more satiated when you get around to eating it. We used to delay gratification. Remember you'd save things up for after dinner? Imagine kids doing that today. I mean, one of the big things is to not snack. The snacking concept, the idea of eat lots of small meals, you know, five or six times a day, it's far better for you. You know, that's complete fabrication. It was invented, confected in the 1990s by nutritionists and dietitians who had all of these people coming to them who were on a sugar roller coaster. 
and they couldn't cope, right? And so they'd go, all right, well, eat your almonds and split your lunch between two and eat it at 11 and then at one. And so it was a fix to people who were already on the sugar roller coaster. And, of course, the snack industry was born, you know, and we're just full of sugar. Yeah. It's a beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Isn't, mm-hmm. you know, it's like commercialism business. It fills the yeah. gaps. It's lovely. The worst thing I've ever heard, and I can't remember the term, it's like a, you know, the fast food industry or, the, you know, and I'm going to get slammed by somebody for saying it, but it's like the bottomless stomach or the endless stomach. So the holy grail is like we're eating about as, we're eating as much as we can possibly eat and we're all getting obese. So we can't eat any more. So the holy grail is how do they get us to eat more of what they're producing but we don't get fat. And they started experimenting with fats that you can't digest that just pass through your body. So instead of going the whole idea, and it's quite grotesque when you think about it, is if you went to get a burger that you could eat three because people would. Isn't that terrible? (laughs) Let's talk about about something else because I was listening to, and it's one of many, many things that there's so many things that you're into, but I've been listening. I was listening to, <laughs> to your wild podcast and I've found it quite addictive, actually. Number one, because it's a great concept. And number two is because what it does, it just opens you up and you just talk about stuff, right? And, you you know, what's in your head and what you know. And the concept behind that, which I think most of it, I the bit that I love is where you open the questions up. People DM you, uh, I'm anxious on this, I'm that. What do you think of commercialism yeah. or capitalism or what's your... One this morning was... Uh, it was a political question, you know, who would you vote for if you were conscious of climate change? And I thought, Sarah Wilson, what a bloody good idea that is. Yeah, it's funny. I, I actually, that was just a little random thing to do um, because I was getting lots of questions. And so they brought me into the studio and just fired the questions at me. I hadn't heard them and I just riffed. And that's what I like doing the best is just, you know, talking I suppose to pe- where people are at, you know, these people went to the trouble of sending their questions in and they were heartfelt, weren't they? They were really um, beautiful human questions. Well, they're yeah. certainly they're opening themselves up to you. And I think one of the things that you commented on is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you say, and people ask, you know, but why would you listen to Sarah Wilson? And in one of the things that you said was that, you know, if you were Muhammad and you climbed the mountain and whatever it was, you came back down, People that have worked on themselves, you want to hear about it. They're the experts in a sense. Like you've been working on a number of things, not just one thing, but many things that people now are gravitating towards you because you've worked on yourself. You've got something to say and they trust you. The results are obvious. That's lovely of you to say. I haven't heard it put that way. Um, I think I have felt that I have got, I've been, I now can see my bipolar and my hyperactivity and the fact that I don't sleep as a gift. And I've had the privilege of being a journalist, so I've been able to get in contact with these minds that are far bigger than my own, and I can take the complex information. And I've had the time, I suppose, and the skill set from being a journalist to to be a conduit. So I don't think of myself as an oracle of great wisdoms. I think I'm more of a conduit. And so I feel a responsibility to, you know, like I'll go and do the work. Because like with sugar, I'll go and do it all. And it's like when people used to criticise me, like, oh, you shouldn't tell us to quit a whole food group. And I'm like, I'm not telling you to do anything. The book's called I Quit Sugar. I gave it a go. I did the research. I figured I'd share it with you in case you were interested in doing the same. And so I do try hard not to say everybody should do this. What I do is I try to say, look, the science is saying this, but philosophically this could be another angle. And da, da, da. And the reason why you might be processing it over here is because this is what's happening to your brain right now. Yeah, well, you choose, Maybe. I suppose your audience, you know, the audience, and it's such an, an audience is such a difficult thing to frame 
I mean, because Twitter and social media, you know, it's a cruel place, I think. You know, for even for me, and I'm a pretty straight thinker, I there are times when I just go, seriously, stay in your lane, guys, don't make any comments because they're they're difficult things to deal with. How do you mm. deal when you put yourself out there and you talk about, I don't know, capitalism and climate change and consumerism, let alone, you know, the great success that I quit sugar, how do you deal w- with that kind of Mm. I call it feed- I, I call it feedback. It ain't feedback sometimes. No, because people no, have got opinions. Oh, I don't believe that. I quit sugar. I'm sure I saw her eating cake somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's often slapdowns. You're absolutely right. Um, I guess I've got a couple of theories. I, I used to work to this idea that I got I treated it like a tennis ball coming at me, right? And I could put my energy into trying to volley it back, or I could just let it flaccidly fly past me and splat on the ground behind me. And I just realized that's what I do. It can come at me and I just let it all just splat flaccidly behind me. Then, of course, sometimes it does get to you. And sometimes what I've trained myself to do is that if it's getting to me, it's getting to me for a reason. And it might be because, hey, there might be something you need to look into there. So, for instance, you know, Trump fans, you know, during at the end of last year, because I have a, a reasonably large American audience and I spend a lot of time over there. And so I was, you know, commenting on it and taking part in debates and so on. And I realised that I, when people flew off the handle at me with their conspiracy theories and all of this kind of thing, rather than getting angry, I really did sit and go, what have I got to learn here? I'm getting upset because there's something in me that I'm annoyed with. And usually what it was, was I haven't done enough work to understand where these people are coming from. They're desperately, like I get people going, Sarah, but you question everything. You question the status quo. Why aren't you questioning the vaccination, this pandemic, it's a scam. And so, yeah, I will try to do that. And I'll invite people to send me links that they think are legitimate. And I've changed my mind on a few things. I've softened in certain ways. But again, it comes back to curiosity. I remain curious as to why people are the way they are. So I go and look into the way the brain works and then I can become compassionate. You know, I don't have to like them, but I want to like humanity. I want to believe in humanity. It's a heaving, imperfect force that sort of is at the guts of all of us and it unifies us. And I don't want to give up on that. I don't want to fracture myself away from it. So, yeah, I suppose there's that. I was also bullied all my life for being weird. And so my skin is reasonably thick. Like, yeah, my mum used to say to me, she, she was a very, she's a very shy woman, my God. Do you remember that time she came on set and mum and dad actually came, they came to see what their eldest daughter did for a living. They came on set and dad was like, oh, wow, this is quite a big production, isn't it? We didn't, well, we didn't realise. Um, anyway, um, so mum has said to me once before, she, you know, when I used to be really, I was horribly bullied. I didn't have friends all through primary school and high school. And um, mum used to say, well, Sarah, do you respect these people? And I'd go, no, they're idiots. And she'd go, well, hold your head high. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's, that's the sum total of my mother's, my mother's, you know, imparting of wisdom to me. And that's not true, actually. She's, she taught me to cook. But, um, it's pr- yeah. I, I it's, know in its simplicity it may sound not, n- not enough, but that's, it's good advice. Hold your Yes, and my mother's a very dignified woman. I don't mind that. She, she will not tolerate anything, any fuss, any kind of drama. And um, I suppose, yeah, 
Look, there's so much to life, Gary. There is so much to explore and understand and love and embrace that you've just got to, yeah, maybe what you said, choose your lane. My lane is to just venture forward and the, 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 Tennis balls can land flaccidly behind me. If I know that uh, my integrity is there and if I stick to that commitment I made to myself, looking into that mirror, you know, that when I was in my mid-30s, then I'm all good. Yeah. I like that tennis balls thing. I use one and it's probably quite a popular saying was just because someone chucks the ball at you doesn't mean you have to catch it. So in my mind, often I quite enjoy visualising myself going, I tried, but, you know, Mm. they chucked it that way and I, I ran that way. I tried. But... Yeah. I was going to ask you, and it's probably just going to round up this interview, I suppose. When I listen to what you say, you talk so positively, I suppose, optimistically about the future and about humanity, even though this, there's a bit of me that says, Sarah, you need to be in parliament. Like, really? You're going to do that? You're going to stand up there and do it? Don't answer. Um, <laughs> answer this one instead. It's probably better. What, what, a, what is the great hope? Because I must be honest, and my daughter not teases me is the wrong word, but she gets really upset with me because as I've got older, I suppose I've become more, I feel like my dad. You know, I've become, you know, I'm old enough now to have seen lots of stuff and things that you've you've seen three or four times before and you've heard the same responses. And they could be anything. It could be a politician or it could be a, you know, it could be a diet. It can be anything. And so I, I have, I suppose my opinions have become more set. And I do joke a lot with her about stuff that she wants to take terribly seriously because she's young mm. and she's full of optimism, et cetera. And one, of, one particular thing that really annoys her is I, there's a comedian, he's dead now, um, George Carlin, and he does a skit mm-hmm. called Saving the Planet. And he said the I planet... I love it. That's, the planet will be fine. Humans are fucked. people that are fucked. <laughs> and he does it with such irony, does it? And it's, it's awesome. It's, beaut- it's a sentiment that I go, because he says the planet is just going to carry on without us. You know, yeah, and so uh, if anyone's listening, go and search it up because it is <laughs> the logic. You can't fault the logic. Remember, no, he goes, it's great logic. he goes, the answer. He said, the point of life, plastic. Plastic. He goes, <laughs> exactly. He said, that, what was it? He talks about the fact that you know people worry about plastic, and he said, but maybe the world put us here because it needed plastic and it couldn't figure out how to make it itself. So I say things like that drives a nut. So I, the question, I suppose, if we can wrap it up, because honestly, we could talk for hours because there's so much that you're passionate about. But when you talk about optimism and, you know, humanity, what is it that you hope for in the face of so many challenges? Mm. Let's put it that way. Yes, well, I, I'll answer it with a, a very short anecdote. When I was writing my book in the middle of the bushfires, COVID, the whole thing, I was walking past um, just down a construction site, there was a poster and it said, Daddy, what did you do to fix climate change? And I grieved for a good 48 hours and I was like, my mission, so if it said mummy and my foster daughter was asking me, I'd say, all right, I am going to throw everything at making sure not a single person has to turn to a child in 10, 15, 20 years and say, say I didn't do enough when I could. So that's sort of the Pollyanna answer, but at a very personal, selfish kind of level, what is the point of life other than to fight for what we love? And what we love is this planet. We are of this planet. I mean, you've got Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars and all of this business, but we are of this earth. What makes us happiest, and we learnt this in COVID, is the sunsets, the smelling of the cherry blossoms. It's congruency. 
And I talk about this in my book, the way that that fractals in our eyes work. Everything about us is attuned to to recognising ourselves as part of nature. And to see nature and this planet being destroyed is just viscerally terrible. So what keeps me going is nature, is my love of life. And somebody once said to me, if we lose it all, what is left for you, Sarah? And I quote Eric Fromm, who is a... He's a nuclear physicist from the 1970s and he was writing in, the, in terms of nuclear, you know, war and all of this kind of thing. And he said his answer was to make his life a study in work and love. And so at a personal <clears throat> day-to-day level, how I spend my hours is making my life a study of work and love. Work I'm pretty good with, love I struggle with. Sarah Wilson, thank you so much. Oh, my, my pleasure, Gary. What a lovely way to talk to you again. I'm going to ask you something because I always do a tip and trick for food. Sarah, have you got a little tip and trick that people can, I don't know, action now? Yeah. um, It sounds like I'm my grandmother, but (laughs) don't peel anything. Like you really don't need to. Pumpkin, sweet potato, you don't need to peel it. If you're making smoothies with strawberries, just chuck it in with the the green stalky bits because you're only going to chuck kale or something in there as well. Um, Kiwi fruit, the skin's perfectly edible. Like just don't peel anything. Um, And ditto with lemon and, you know, often asked for zest and the juice. Chuck the whole lot into a stab mixer or a blender and use the whole lot. That is the best tip and trick. I love that one. People forget and they're habitual. They just mm-hmm. do it because, you know, yep. fantastic. Yep. Sarah Wilson, awesome. have a fantastic day. Listener.